Well, I am glad you're here this morning. As Andy said, we're going to be in Matthew 22. If you want to find that passage of scripture, we're going to be over there in just a minute. But today, what I'm going to do is bring a message related to the most important commandment. And this is not really part of the Flourish series that Pastor Andrew's been leading us through on the Ten Commandments, but I see it more as kind of a compliment to it. He'll be back next week to continue that series with you guys. And let me just stop and say, as, as someone who has had the privilege to stand before you through difficult times in the last three years, what a blessed church we are. Am I right about that or not? I mean, God has led us such an amazing leader, pastor, preacher, his family, him. It's just a blessing. And uh, so many times I think we all kind of wondered where this was going to end up, this journey we were on. And it's ended up in a very, very good and strong place. And so I just want to praise the Lord for that this morning. But this morning, as we think about the most important command, you think about this being sort of a companion to the Ten Commandments. I hope you'll view it that way. In, in Matthew 22, what's happened right before the passage we're going to read together this morning is the Sadducees have come to Jesus and they've pr proposed this hypothetical situation to him to sort of stump him, to create a gotcha moment for him where they try to stump him and discredit him, make him look foolish in public. Ultimately, what they're seeking to do is gather evidence against him for a trial that they'll later have on behalf of Jesus to, to crucify him ultimately. And so they fail. So the Pharisees want to take their shot at it. So if you'll look in verse 34 of Matthew 22, this is what it says. The Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. And so they came together and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. There's their motivation. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So Jesus is offering a direct quote from the Old Testament when they ask him this question, but then he adds something to it at the end that's original to Jesus, and it's very important. Now, we're not going to deal with the second command this morning. We're just going to deal with the first one. The second one is very important, but that's a whole sermon series in itself. And I didn't figure you wanted to be here all afternoon. So we're just going to deal with the first one this morning together. And what I want to do this morning is lead you to three simple discoveries about the most important command. And the first is this, that the most important command reveals God's heart for you. Think about that. Every command of God reveals something to us about who he is. Everything that he would command us to do or not do speaks of some value that he places on our life for something we either should do or not do. And that communicates something to us about his character, about who he is. In fact, the whole Bible is God's revelation of himself to all people. His specific declaration of his character and who he is and what he's about. Now, the first little church I served in as youth minister, I probably had 40, 45 kids, something like that. I don't know. But the day I got hired, the chairman of the personnel committee pulled me to the side. And he said, there's two things you need to know. First of all, your youth budget for the year is $400. Okay. He said, now you know how a church budget works, right? And I was like, uh-huh. I had no idea how a church budget worked. He goes, well, here, what that really means is you don't really have that money unless we give the whole budget for the year. So you don't really have that money either. And I was like, okay, great. He goes, second thing is we can't find anybody who will teach the seventh grade boys. And there's 15 of them on, on a given Sunday. So you're going to have to do it. Good luck. That's what he said to me. 
So I thought, well, hey, I'm 22 years old at the time. I'm not scared of any 12 or 13 year old on the planet. Even 15 of them together may be dawning, but I can handle it, right? I had no idea what I was up against. So I had to teach these boys. And at the time we were using the curriculum that the Sunday school board gave us to use. And it was 10 or 12 verses expositionally that we're going to cover. And I would study and I would go in there and I would pour my heart out to those 15 boys. And they didn't care at all about anything the Bible said about anything. Certainly didn't care about what I was talking about. And so after a few weeks of that, I thought, I've got to have a plan B. This is not really working. What I'm trying to do is communicate to them who God is. I didn't just want them to know the word of God. I wanted them to know the God of the word. I wanted them to personally have a relationship with God. And they were good kids, but there were 15 of them on most Sundays, you know. And so uh, it was kind of daunting. We were in this little bitty room, the second floor of the church. And one Sunday I had to leave and go out and do something. I came back, the door was locked. They locked me out of the Sunday school room. So after I convinced them that I would kill them if they didn't open the door, you know, they opened the door. And, and I know why they locked the door, because they were dangling the smallest of their, their bunch out the second floor window over the parking lot, literally. He didn't die. They got him back in the window. But I really prayed and I said, God, I want to show these boys who you are. How can I do that? How can I create some sense of interest on their part for your word? And I feel like the Lord gave me an idea. I give him credit for it. It works, so I give him credit for it. If it hadn't worked, I'd have taken credit for it. But the reality is I came in one Sunday and I said, look, I want you to put your, your Sunday school book. Well, they didn't have Sunday. They didn't look Sunday school. But I said, put, put everything down. Listen, here's what we're going to do. What we're going to do for the next few weeks is you're going to pretend to be God. I know, I know. Just hang on a second. I said, you're going to pretend to be God. And here's what I want you to do. I want each of you, before you come back next Sunday, to come up with your top 10 most important rules or principles for life. Because you now are God and all the people in the world are your people. And I want you to come up with 10 rules for how they should live their life. Things you want them to do, things you don't want them to do, okay? And here's the deal. You can't ask anybody for help with this, okay? So I just want you to go. You can bring whatever rule you want to. And next week, we're going to put them all on the board back here and we're going to look at them. So we did. And believe it or not, most of them came back with a few. They didn't have 10 necessarily, but they had a few. So we put them all on the board. And I said, now we're going to switch the game a little bit. And here's how it's going to work. Instead of each of you pretending to be God, now you collectively, we're going to pretend that collectively you as a Sunday school class are God. And what I want you to do is take all these rules that are on this board over here. And I want you to distill them down to top your top 10, but you have to all agree on them. So you're going to have to debate. You're going to have to present your case for why you chose the ones you have. And we haven't even opened the Bible yet, okay? So we're just, this is just their human wisdom at 12 and 13 years of age, okay? So we did that for several weeks. They argued with each other. They presented their case. This is why I think this one's important. And others would say, no, that's not important. At the end of it, we came up with 10. And then I said, now, I want you to bring your Bible next week and I'm gonna show you God's top 10. So we got out Exodus 20, just like we've been doing the Flourish series. And we went through God's 10 commandments. And I began to show them, just like they had a reason for why they put a certain command on the board that they thought was important, I began to show them why God said the Ten Commandments, the individual commandments, why they were so important to Him, what those commandments revealed about His heart. Because I wanted them to see the heart of God. Because every command in the Bible reveals something to us about the heart of God. Is that the way you view the commands? Do you view them as part of God's revelation to you about who he is, about his character? If that's true, then what does the most important command say to us 
about what God's heart is like? Well, to me, you can't miss it. It communicates his amazing love because love seeks love. You think about the people in your life right now that you love, that you would say that you love. What do you want back from them most? Love, right? I mean, if it's your kids, you may say, well, I want obedience. But really, if they just obeyed you and they couldn't stand to be with you, would that satisfy you? No. Love always seeks love. And that's true in the Bible too. In fact, 1 John affirms that. 1 John 4, 8 says this, the one who does not love does not know God. That's a pretty bold statement. The one who does not love does not know God. So check your love this morning. How's your love for God? How's your love for other people? Because if it's missing, the Bible says that's part of the reason for that is that you don't know God. Because he goes on to say in verse 8, because God is love. And then in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So our love is always a reaction. It's always a response to his love for us if we know that he loves us. And when we love, it's a sure sign that we know him as the God of love, the God that he is, the God that he's revealed himself to be, not just in the New Testament. So we hear a lot about the Old Testament. People discredit it. People um, demean its importance. But the reality is the Old Testament's part of the revelation of God, too. And if you're one of these people that believes that the God of the Old Testament was a mean, angry, judging God, and the God of the New Testament is kind and loving, you're wrong. God is love from Genesis all the way to Revelation. He hasn't changed. We just sang about that. He's the same God all the way through. But we don't read the Old Testament with that viewpoint, do we? We read the Old Testament and we think, oh man, it's full of judgment. It's full of God's people being in trouble for the things that they did or didn't do right. And the reality is nothing's changed. When Jesus presents the most important command. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, which the Jews called the Shema or the Shema, which means basically to hear. And so this is what it says in Deuteronomy. It says, listen, Israel, hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. It's important. Repeat them to your children. And a good Jew would do that. Twice a day, they would recite what I just read to you. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That's a prescription for Christian parenting right there. Not just bringing your kids to church so the church will talk to them about loving the Lord, but you as a parent, when you get up in the morning, when you put them to bed at night, when you sit in your house together, when you drive along the road, because most of us don't walk along the road much anymore. But the reality is when we spend time with our kids, those, those four times are absolute times that every family and almost every culture celebrate together every day of their lives. So what the Lord's saying is it's important that you're constantly talking to your kids about loving God supremely. Bind them, he says, as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. And Jewish people would do that. These little wooden boxes called phylacteries. And they would put them on their wrist. They would put them on their forehead. Some Orthodox Jews still practice that today. That contain these words. Or it says here, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. So several years ago, we had friends in our church here who had lived in a house that was built here in Longview by a Jewish couple. And they literally had a little mezuzah, which is the little wooden box on their doorpost that contained Deuteronomy 6.4 in it. So they took that quite literally, but the point was to remind yourself often to not lose sight of the fact that the most important thing to God has always been that you love him supremely. And that's the way they practice that. But I mentioned that in verse 40, Jesus 
adds something original to this, something new. When he says that on these two commandments, loving God supremely and loving your neighbor as yourself, all the law and the prophets depend on those two tenets. In other words, what he's saying is essentially all the teaching of the Old Testament, all of it was designed to emphasize those two things. The Ten Commandments, the first four are about loving God. The last six are about loving each other. And what he's saying is God's heart hasn't changed. From the very beginning of his covenant relationship with his people, his goal for them was the same. And that is that they would love him supremely. The one who does not love, John says, does not know God because God has always been love. So when you know that about God, when you know that from the very beginning, what he wanted most from his people was for them to love him, it changes the way you understand and read the Old Testament. Because now you can read the Old Testament knowing that what God wanted most from his people was love. He wasn't just after compliance. He wasn't just after obedience. He didn't want heartless religion. He wanted his people to love him supremely. And all through the Old Testament, you can see that. He uses the phrase, the law and the prophets, because that basically contained the teaching in the Old Testament. The law, first five books of the Old Testament, that's where we find the Ten Commandments. That's where we find what I just read to you from Deuteronomy. The law teaches the love of God, but also the prophets. And I find that a lot of people that are modern Christians today don't know much about the prophets. Back in the fall, Andrew led us through a series on Haggai. Haggai's one, Haggai's one of the minor prophets, not minor because of his importance, but because of the length of his writing. Because there are major and minor prophets, but the Old Testament is full of books written by men that God called to be his prophets. So here's what a prophet would do. People of God wouldn't listen to God. They would, we would wander away from God. That's the story of the Old Testament. God loved them. He was in a covenant relationship with them, but they continued to turn their back. They continued to look around at their culture and go, well, but these people over here, they worship this God and their crops are doing better than ours are. So we're going to worship you, Yahweh, but we're also going to worship Baal because we need both to have a good life. And God took that very personally. He didn't say, it's okay to love me and love other gods too. No, he said, that's not okay with me. And so he would send a prophet, just an ordinary person to his people to stand up and do what I'm doing right now to say, thus says the Lord. And often it was reminding them of what he'd already said to them in the law. It was reminding them that what he was after most of all was for them to love him. The commands reveal the heart of God. So when you think about it, here's some examples from the prophets to show you what I'm talking about. Hosea, I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Hosea or not, but Hosea is an amazing story. This man, Hosea, God called him to basically live out in front of the people through his own life what God's heart was experiencing by the people's unfaithfulness because God called Hosea to take a wife who he knew was going to be unfaithful to him. Unimaginable, unthinkable. Hosea took a wife who he knew was going to be unfaithful to him and he had children with her. And God said to do that because my people had been unfaithful to me day without end. And so it's a picture of God's love. So listen, listen to what it says in Hosea 6, 4 through 6. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? That's Israel, basically. Your love is like the morning mist and like the early dew that vanishes. Well, we all know what dew is. It's there till about 1030 or 11 o'clock in the morning on your grass and it goes away. It doesn't last. And that's what he compares his people's love for him to. This is why I've used the prophets to cut them down. I've killed them with my words from my mouth. Sure, there's judgment. My judgment strikes like lightning for I desire what? Obedience, 
Compliance, sacrifices? No, I, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Did he require sacrifices? Yes, but not absence of love for him. So what you see in the Old Testament is a God who is very graphically described his love for his people. And, and the book of Hosea is pretty graphic. I don't think I would read the whole thing with children in the room today. But the point is you should read it and understand that what God is saying is the most the most brokenhearted person in the world can relate to who I am as your God because I love you and you will not love me back. That's the picture of God's heart. That's what the command to love him most reveals to us about his heart. What about Jeremiah? We talk about Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, the prophet who cried all the time because he was brokenhearted for his people on behalf of God. Listen to what it says. The word of the Lord came to me, go and announce directly to Jerusalem that this is what the Lord says. I remember the loyalty of your youth your love as a bride. Wedding days are all about love. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. God says, I remember when you loved me like a bride loves her groom. That's the language of love. God says, I remember that love for you had for me. And then this verse in chapter 30, 31 is just precious to me. Isn't Ephraim a precious son to me, God says? A delightful child, whenever I speak against him, in other words, when I have to prophesy against him, I certainly still think about him. Therefore, listen to this, my inner being yearns for him. That's the God that we serve. That's the God of Moses. That's the God of Mary and David. That's the God that we sing to. That's the God who sent Jesus to die for you. God whose heart yearns for you. The one who does not love does not know God. Do you know God? Do you know what God's like? When you're away from him, his heart yearns for you? That he says when you sin, you grieve his Holy Spirit. Grief is a byproduct of love. You don't grieve for things you don't love. You don't miss things you don't love. But when you love someone and they're gone, you grieve for them. And that's what, that's what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying God's revealing himself through Jeremiah to say, my heart yearns for my people. I want them to love me. Not just to follow a bunch of rules and go through the motions. Not just to show up at the temple with their sacrifice and think that somehow I'm satisfied with that. I want their heart. I want their love. That's the most important command. And then Micah, who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever. Why? <clears throat> because he delights in faithful love. God has always been about wanting his people to love him. And there's no substitute for that. And the commands of God reveal to us what his heart is actually like. So God's teaching us through the law and the prophets, basically the most important thing you can do for me, for Israel was to love him. And what's true for Israel is true for us. The most important thing we can do, because Jesus says it in Matthew right here, the most important thing you can do is love me supremely. That reveals to us God's heart for us. So do you love God like that? The second thing I want you to see this morning is not only does the most important command reveal God's heart for you, but the most important command also regulates your life. It, it brings regulation, it brings order and structure to your life. The most important command really communicates three ideas that I think are important. They all begin with the letter P. I'm a Baptist, so I alliterate everything. So the first word is passion. God is a passionate God. The fact that he would even use the word love to describe what he has for us is amazing to me. He's a passionate God. 
He, he doesn't want heartless, cold adherence. He wants us to be people who serve him from a heart on fire for him, passionately loving him. And just as God's passion led him to rescue Israel from Egypt and take them to the promised land, God's passion for you and for me and for every person on this planet is that we would be rescued, not just from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery to sin, that we'd be freed to live a life that honors him. In fact, Tim quoted this verse earlier, but Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God proves his love. He doesn't just say he loves us. He shows us his love by what he's done for us. God is passionate for us. Have you discovered that, that God's passionate for you, that he wants you, that he pursues you, and he's always going to pursue you? He's never going to stop. His love is endless, and he loves you in that way. So once you understand, once you know that God, the way that God truly is, you will reciprocate. We love because he first loved us, John says. So once you know his love for you, you'll want to love him back. What does that word mean, love? Well, you guys have heard me say this before. The best definition of the Greek word agape, which is the word that's used here, is to place supreme value upon someone. So it's not, a, it's not a friendship love. There's another word for that. It's not a romantic love. There's another word for that. This is a uniquely Jesus Christian kind of love, the kind of love where you look at someone and you say, I don't know anything about you, but I know you're made in God's image and you're created by God and you're loved by God. So I can treat you and think of you as someone who has supreme value because you're a human being. I can love you like that. I can treat you like that. And my, I start with my mind, but my heart will follow. And the reality is I can look at God and the difference is God is worthy of my love. I know about God's love. And when I know about God's love, it causes me to want to place supreme value on him in my life, to love him supremely. So the word passion is important because what God's calling us to is to place supreme value upon him, to be passionate about him. The second truth that's found in this command is the idea of priority. Jesus says here that there's one command that's greater. He uses the word mega, which means great. He's saying, yeah, one command is more important than the others. Jesus could have said, no, none of them are, none of them are more important than the other. They're all equal. No, he didn't say that. He said, there is one that's more important. It, it, it's a priority that you love God supremely. So it gives you and me permission to make it a priority in our life. There's so much about living the Christian life that seems dawning sometimes. Like there's so many commands we're supposed to keep and so much stuff we're supposed to be about, right? But the focus of our life ought to be on loving God supremely. And he gives us permission to focus on that, to make it a priority in our lives because he says it is a priority. It's the most important command. There was a time in my life, probably about a year and a half into my Christianity where I was becoming aware of who God was, reading my Bible for myself and also being influenced by outside, outside sources. There was a, a Christian musician, some of you that are my age, a little older will remember a guy named Keith Green. And Keith was a radical, I would say a prophet for God. He was, when I heard him do a concert, he was 26 years of age. He'd been saved out of Judaism and he was a radically on fire guy for the Lord. I went to a concert over in Tyler at Caldwell Auditorium. That used to be about the only venue in Tyler where you could have a concert. And it was a free concert. I didn't know anything about this guy. We go in and every seat on the floor is filled. The balcony's starting to fill up. He comes out, it's just him and a piano. He comes out and he says, listen, we're gonna raise all the curtains on the stage and there's people outside waiting to get in. We're just gonna let them sit on the floor. So if some of y'all wanna come up and sit on the floor, that's fine. So before that thing was over, 
here's pianos on the stage, like right here, and the whole backstage, all the curtains are raised. There are people sitting on the floor all around his piano. He can't even get up and walk around to talk because there's people everywhere. And for like an hour and a half, two hours, he both preached and sang. And I was so heavy under conviction when I left there. And he said, I want you to leave tonight. I don't want you to say a word. I just want you to leave in an attitude of prayer. I'd never heard people preach and say the things that he said. It was just, it was radical obedience and love for God. And I'd never heard that. But, but it was a little heavy on obedience. It was a little heavy on holiness and judgment. And so that night I signed up for his newsletter. It was called The Last Day's Newsletter. He had this ministry called Last Day's Ministries. I began to get that newsletter and read it every month. And it was all about, he would reprint these uh, articles and these sermons from guys who preached in the 1800s, revivalists and holiness preachers. And it was all about judgment. It was all about holiness and righteousness. So the priority of my life became be holy, be righteous. And I focused in on that. That became my total focus as a Christian. And so when I read about judgment in the Bible, I could totally sympathize with God. I was like, yeah, you should judge me. I'm a sinful, sinful person. I was very aware of my unholiness in my life, of my sinfulness. And so I would, I would read those passages of scripture and I'd think, yes, God, God's so angry with me. God's so mad at me all the time. There was no love in my relationship with the Lord at all. It was a loveless Christianity. Can you relate to that? I mean, I was keeping the rules. I was doing everything I knew to keep the rules and to be good at that and to be focused on that and to say I was sorry and repent when I sinned, but I felt like a bug, a worthless worm before God. I really did. I didn't feel any sense of love for God. And I certainly didn't believe he had any sense of love for me, even though I read in my Bible that he loved me. But in practical terms, that's not the way I live my life because the influences in my life and my lack of understanding of the Bible caused me to focus on the wrong thing. And we can do that unless we understand the point here, which is the priority of our life. God gives us permission to make the priority of our life, loving him first and most, loving him supremely. That's what it's about. I used to read John 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I thought that meant, well, once I keep all the commands, then I can say, I love God without really having any love for God at all. So that was backwards because what Jesus really meant is when you love me, you will do the things that please me. That works. The question is, is there love in your relationship with the Lord? So the third word that's a part of this command that's important is the word precedence. So passion, priority, and precedence. Because what Jesus says, there's a, there's a command that comes before the others. There's an order here. And Jesus shares the correct order with us. He says, look, they're all the commands in scripture are important. I command you to pray. You can't really have a good relationship with God unless you pray, but that's not the most important thing. That's not the first thing. Uh, serving's important. Jesus actually said that serving is the thing that he'll reward the most in heaven. When James and John came to him and asked him, can we sit on your right and left? And he goes, are you prepared to be the greatest servant of all? Because that's what that position's reserved for. You, you could say, well, serving's it, right? Focus on serving. That's not the first command. That's not the correct order. Giving. We want you to give because we need to meet the budget at the church so we can do all the wonderful ministries like high school camp and all these other things and touch people's lives with the gospel. And it's important. But giving's not the first thing. You know why? Because if you give and you serve and you just pray and you don't love God, you won't do any of those things very well very long. But if your first priority, if the thing you do first, if you get the order right and you love God first, then guess what? You will serve him, you will pray to him and you will give generously to him because you love him. That's the correct order. And so Jesus gives us permission to do it in that order to focus our attention on what comes first. 
And once you know the great command and you live it out and begin to know that, it has regulation for your life. It regulates how you live your life. And the third discovery that I want you to make this morning about the great and most important command is this, that it requires all of you. There's no shortcut for that. Because you see, he says, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind or strength. Mark says that strength or mind. So there's four of these components. And the first three are really inner. Your heart, your mind, and your soul. I have no idea what's going on in your heart and mind and soul today. And you don't mind either. Because it's in here. But God does. What I can observe about you is how you serve. I can observe the outward things about you. Your strength, not your physical strength, but the strength of your life. I can observe that about you. You can observe that about me. But what God says is I want all four of those things to come together and be consistent. I want the inner you and the outer you to match. I want there to be integrity. I don't want you just to stand up in church and sing beautiful songs about me, about loving me. I want you to actually love me in your heart. What God's saying is I don't want a heartless, soulless, mindless, weak love. I want a heartful, soulful love mindful, strong love. That's what I want from you. And that's what God deserves from us. So it's important that we have integrity in that. Jesus said this, quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew, when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You can't fool God. You either love God supremely or you don't. And, and, and you, nothing you can do outwardly can fool God about that. He knows your inner being. And he wants all of you. He wants all your love because he actually deserves all your love. That's the kind of God that he is. So it's no surprise then that in the New Testament, when Jesus writes to the angel, to the letters to the church at Ephesus and the different churches in the book of Revelation, that he says this to Ephesus in Revelation 2, you've abandoned your first love. He talks about all the wonderful things they've done, but he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. You don't love me. First, most, anymore. You used to. Isn't that what Jeremiah said about the people of Israel? I remember the devotion of your youth. Some of you and these high school kids were standing down here a second ago. You can go, yeah, I remember when I was a teenager. I was on fire for the Lord then. But now, what happened to your love? Did your love grow cold? Has it grown cold? Have you begun to believe that God's more interested in something else in your life now? No. No, God hadn't changed. And that's the thing that transforms us. When we really begin to understand what God's after in our lives hasn't changed. It's love. It's always been love. God's heart for you, his pursuit of you never changes. I heard a quote from a guy named David Wilkerson when I was in college. David Wilkerson, you may remember some of you who are from a different generation than the younger generation, maybe my generation a little older. David Wilkerson was an evangelist. He actually went to New York City and he, he would work with the gangs in New York City, led a young man named Nicky Cruz to the Lord. They wrote a book. He wrote a book about it called The Cross and the Switchblade. You guys remember that? Pat Boone was in the movie. You remember that? He has white shoes on. You remember that? Anyway, so um, David Wilkerson actually came to live in Lindale and uh, formed a ministry called Teen Challenge, where they went out and shared the gospel with teenagers all over the world. It was an amazing thing and started a church on Times Square Church in New York City several years ago. He's gone to be with the Lord now. But I had the privilege to go to a Bible study out at his place one night and hear him say this. And it, it really challenged me. Maybe it'll challenge you as well. He said this, God is more interested in winning all of you than in having you win all the world for him. Let that sink in for a minute. 
God is more interested in winning all of you more than you going and winning all the world for him. So the question is this morning, does he have all of you? Does he have your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Do you love him like that? Listen to this. 2 Timothy says this. But know this. Hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of other sinful activities. And he says at the very end of that verse in verse 4, rather than lovers of God. People will be lovers of money, lovers of self, lovers of pleasure, instead of being lovers of God. So where are you with that this morning? Because Jesus knows your heart. He knows the inner you. Do you love pleasure more than God? Convenience, comfort? Do you love money, security more than God? Do you love yourself more than God? Is pride your God? Because we're living in the last days, there's no question about it. Now, how soon will Jesus be back? I don't know. But that is a very accurate description of the culture we live in. And unfortunately, it's a pretty accurate description of most of the churches that are in our, in our culture now. People love themselves more than they love God. So this morning, the thing that I would say to you as we close is that there's nothing that's going to satisfy God unless you love him supremely, completely. But, but that just blows my mind that he would even want my love. He loves me that much. He loves you that much. He wants your love back. So this morning, I'm going to challenge you just to ask yourself a simple question. Do you love God supremely this morning? And if you don't, repent. You can. Say, God, I'm sorry. Just give it to God and say, I'm sorry. I don't want that to be true of my life. I want to love you supremely, completely. And then get on with doing that, making him the priority of your life. You know, you can't have a relationship with God on your own. I know that there's always guests when we come together and meet like this and people who are watching online this morning, and we're certainly glad you're with us. There are almost a thousand people some Sundays that watch online. So we're certainly glad you're with us. But some of you online, some of you in the room may have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, Jesus said this about himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father unless he comes through me. Now, a lot of you in this room have, have discovered that and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're what the Bible calls saved. You've been saved from the penalty of your sin, from the power of your sin. You've been forgiven. And the rest of you who don't know the Lord yet, you could have that same gift of eternal life, salvation today. I know you're getting restless. Hang on with me just a minute. I'm almost through, but this is really, really important. I'm gonna ask you just to bow your heads this morning and pray for the people that are sitting around you. Pray for the people who are watching online. Maybe heard this message this morning and said, I want a, I want a relationship with God like that. I wanna want love God. I wanna know God. How do I do that? It's very simple, simple enough for a child to do it. You simply turn away from the sin in your life, you reject it, you abandon it, turn your back on it, and you say, Jesus Christ, I want you to save me. The Bible says this, it makes a promise that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So right where you're sitting this morning, right where you're watching, if you'd like to pray and receive Christ and call upon his name, I'm just gonna lead you through a time of praying to receive Christ. So you could 
use my words or your own words, but say something like this, dear Lord in heaven, I believe that you're real. I believe that you died for, for my sin on the cross and that you rose again to give me a relationship with God, to cancel out the penalty of my sin. And I'm sorry for my sin. I don't want it. I reject it. I want you, God, I want you, Jesus, to save me. So thank you for coming into my life and saving me. I wanna live for you, I wanna love you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.